Hey, all you avid listeners out there, this is Dr. John. And if you enjoy what you're hearing on these joint podcasts with me and my fiance, Jory Rose, please know that we are offering a week-long retreat in Costa Rica in April of 2023 at one of the top resorts in the country where the body workers are next level and you will learn from myself and Jory how to be in better relationship to yourself, to your loved one, and to everyone else. This is going to be a once in a lifetime experience. Please feel free to check out the podcast notes for more links, details, and info. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with another episode of the Evolved Caveman. And I am thrilled to have with me here today, Henry Edwards. And Henry's a new friend of mine whose mission is to accentuate human goodness and moral progress to promote greater well being. For the past 30 plus years, he has taught a variety of subjects, history, English, social sciences, math, science, at all levels. In his teaching and writing, he promotes a realistic and optimistic view of the world based on broad trends supported by data. He has a book out recently, The Daily Better, 365 Reasons for Optimism, which we're going to get into today. And he is currently working on his next book, Positive Psychology for Teens. And this is one of the things that drew me to him. He's on the faculty and he is a graduate, I believe, right, Henry, of the MAP program. program. So the MAP program is, to me, a very famous program. It was the first positive psychology program in the world. So it stands for Masters of Applied Positive Psychology. Uh, He is also the well-being director at the New School of Northern Virginia. Henry, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, John. Super happy to be here and and great, great getting to know you. Yeah, and our first conversation before this was uh, a blast. Like, I really enjoyed it. I find those conversations so restorative. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot, um, of, a lot of common themes. And, and uh, you know, I love that there's, excuse me, I'm just going to clear my throat here. Mm-hmm. You know, so much, uh, you know, a lot of what we were talking about is, is having to do with, with men and being a man and, this, and, and some of the challenges of that, um, which I think is great. And, and one of the, you know, most treatment resistant groups, and you know, this as a clinician are, are men. So it's just great to talk about, um, kind of challenges men have and, uh, and optimism and among uh, and positive psychology are, are great, great things to bring to, to all that. Yeah. And I'm, I want to get into that in a little bit, but first I want to hear about your story. So how did you get involved in positive psychology? Why does it matter? Um, well, why I mean, should I, I give a lot- shit about positive psychology, Henry? Right, right. Well, for me, it was, it was pain. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, pain is often the touchstone of growth. So growing up, um, I was not a happy kid, um, like a lot of kids, I think, but, uh, my, my specific brand of it was, I think I was a depressed kid and also there was alcoholism. Um, and you and I were talking about marriage and how challenging that is. And my, my folks, I think did the best they could, but Ultimately, you know, they, they split, which is which happens to 40, 50% of marriages, of course. So it's a pretty common thing. Um, but I think uh, my, al- my own alcoholism kind of grew out of, of all that in my teens. And I was a pretty depressed kid. So, I mean, that depression, you know, came through. And also, I still, I still uh, have, have to deal with that, although I have a lot of tools now. And I feel like I'm in a really good place with that. So going into... Um, you know, just, just doing a lot of, uh, alcohol, drugs, high school, college, um, got through college, um, miraculously and started teaching. And right as I got out of college, my dad was, he had a cancer diagnosis. Um, you know, a lot of it had to do with his lifestyle, which was, his, he was a smoker and an alcoholic. And, uh, when he was 59 and I was 24, he died. Mm, and so all of, yeah, thank you. All of the, all of the, the pain kind of came up. And so I did something a lot of people do, which is I got some therapy, um, which really, really was helpful. Um, another thing that wait, wait, happened so is let me I, pause you there. So yeah, I'm, sure. I'm a little bit confused. You're a man. Yep. And you got therapy. I know. Can you believe it? Miracle. So you're kind of a unicorn. <laughs> kind of a unicorn. Yeah, I prefer, <laughs> prefer narwhal. I'm a, I'm a rainbow narwhal. <laughs> Makes me think of elf. Yes. Yes. Hope you find your dad. Exactly. Very good. Yeah. Knew that reference. Um, yeah. So, so, um, got, so uh, so anyways, did some therapy. Um, and, uh, I think a turning point 
um, and this is a big part of my story was, um, I took a, I took a 500 mile walk on the Appalachian trail and, um, you know, one of the, one of something in positive psychology is this idea of agency and efficacy that you can do something. And I, I really think that, um, you know, it, it was terrible losing my dad when I was pretty young, but, um, one thing it did, one lesson I got out of it, um, and this is something else in positive psychology is benefit finding. And, and one mm-hmm. benefit um, was that, I mean, I really realized that this was it. This was not a dress rehearsal. And so I started taking risks. And of course, I think part of any kind of growth is risk taking. And so I, I, after that trip, I mean, I felt a lot more like, like I had some control over my life that I had some fun. And then um, I think I had, I had kind of enough kind of ego strength to then get sober. And I got sober when I was 27 and I've been sober, you know, most of my life now I've been sober 28 years. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think, so, so where this, how, what does this have to do with positive psychology? So when I'm getting sober, my mentor is telling me you have to have an attitude of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And at first I'm like, for what? Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I still, did you go through those three stages of like that criticism or feedback where the the first stage is like, fuck you. And the second stage yeah. is like, I suck. And the third stage is like, wait, what? Attitude of gratitude. Yeah. No, I go through that all the time. Yeah. I love that because it's like anger externalized, anger internalized. And then wait a second, maybe he has something. And, and, and actually, I'm, sh- I'm sure you'll agree with this, making that loop faster, right? Yes. Getting yeah. to the point where it's like... Seconds. When, when someone... When, when you, and again, very much a positive psychology thing is to turn that into like, Oh, someone's criticizing me. This is gold. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's a gift. Criticism is a gift. Cause I'm going to learn something important about myself. And actually when I love writing, I mean, I'm, I love writing and that's a huge part of my well-being kind of profile, but I'm, I'm in a writer's group, you know, to make my writing better. But I also, I just hear criticism all the time and it's great. Mm. It just, I become more resilient and getting into this mindset of like criticism is a gift. Can I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but Sure. You know, if you think of sensitivity to rejection on a spectrum, one to 10, one being I'm fine with rejection, 10 being it crushes me. Where were you at the beginning of, well, maybe back even when you're in your twenties or teens, how sensitive to rejection have you been throughout your lifespan? Because it sounds like you've, with practice, you've gotten better and better at it. Because it made me think, oh, the criticism, if it keeps coming at you, you get better at receiving it and you get less sensitive to rejection. Well, I think it's like habits, right? So if, if you make a habit of deflecting criticism, um, then you're going to, it's, you know, I, I think I had a shell. I mean, I, I was so, yeah, I mean, so I, so I was a nine, I would say, right. I was, a yeah. nine. I mean, criticism really crushed me. Um, granted, I was very good at giving it, especially to <laughs> my parents. I yes. love that. <laughs> yes. Cause yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I, me too. When I was back, when I was younger. Right. And, and you were saying externalizing it, right? But, you know, that's the problem, right? Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think it's practice. And, but I do think it's, I, I think, in, you know, you're, you're a clinician, doing it with people who are wise is so helpful. Because, and, and if there's any theme, um, you know, there's many themes, actually, but a really important theme is getting help. You know, getting help um, on an ongoing basis. That was something else I learned getting sober is that, you know, asking for help is strength. And, Definitely. you know, my father was a silent generation guy and I think he was worried about appearing, you know, he's, you know, I think earlier generations, especially of men were much more reputation management oriented. You know, I got to look tough. I got to have my shit together. And now we know, I mean, what, what I think everybody's learning, hopefully um, not everybody, but is that, you know, vulnerability, I think of Brene Brown's work, uh, weakness. Mm-hmm. I mean, how is so, how is someone going to help you if they think you're invulnerable and perfect and tough? So that's just so important. Yeah. Well, and I love the study they did a while back and I can't cite the authors, but where they had people go up on stage and share something vulnerable. And there was this huge gap between self-perception and other perception. So after you're on stage and you're, you know, I'm talking about my alcoholism or whatever it is, I get off stage and I'm like, oh my God, like, what did I just do? Like, that was so embarrassing. I don't even know why I shared that. And yet everyone in the audience is like, wow, that was so courageous. Like, exactly. And and they feel somehow more bonded to that person. 
Absolutely. And, and so I, I try and keep that in mind too, that there's this big difference between watching someone else do it and what you feel and think versus doing it yourself, at least initially. Yeah. And like so many things, you're trying to get that, the, the, close the, the space, close the gap, yeah. right? It's that, that Theodore Frankel, uh, you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space, yep. right? And in that space is, lies our freedom. Mm-hmm. So this, this, you know, everything is practice, right? Anders Ericsson and, and other people, uh, other psychologists. But, but if yeah. I real, as sooner I realize that vulnerability is going to lead to intimacy. Um, and, you know, you don't lead with the chin. I mean, you don't just be vulnerable all the time, right? There's, there's <laughs> yes. a time. But you just bring, like, if I'm vulnerable, that I'm going to have intimacy. Like, I don't know about you, but I thought intimacy was sex. That's what, that's what I thought until probably not. in my 20s. <laughs> that's right. John, I gotta, I gotta talk to you. So we're gonna meet afterward. There's this thing called intimacy that it's not does not involve your penis. Damn it! <laughs> no. But yeah, you know, it's like like oh wow, this is intimacy. This is where you know it, it's a it's a back and forth because you know I, I used to take hostages, right? I, it would be like I'd, I'd have a girlfriend and I'd tell her everything, and it was a dump. <laughs> Right, like it was not a relationship. Like I used to take hostages. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I have relationships. I used to be hostage situations, right? Um, and, and you know, they had Stockholm syndrome, so she she stuck with me stronger <laughs> than she should have. Um, but yeah, you know, but you have these intimacy, and now, and, and we talked about this earlier. I have this men's group, and I've been in for twenty five years, and everybody knows everything. And we all, we all know that like, oh, if I'm vulnerable, if I'm intimate, you're all going to love me more, right? As opposed to less, even though I know all your warts. Yeah. Well, and, and it's funny, like there's the, um, I don't remember the name of the exercise, but there's a positive psychology exercise where you start off by sharing your biggest challenge and mm-hmm. tell a story. And the story arc goes from your biggest challenge to overcoming that challenge. Yes. And it's so much more powerful. And I've done this in class, teaching class. It's so much more powerful than if I tell you like, hi, Henry, I'm Dr. John Schinner, or I have a PhD from California and I've written a book and I've done this and I've done that. And like, I believe that that sort of introduction just drives a wedge between people because it's kind of like a resume. It's like, here's all my accomplishments. Whereas if I say, you know, wow, I went through this really contentious divorce 10, 12 years ago, and this is how I overcame, you know, my anger at my ex, it makes me much more human and relatable. It, it creates Absolutely. emotions that bond us. Totally agree. And, and I think of the work of like, um, Dan McAdams, uh, at Northwestern. Oh gosh. I want to say Tim Wilson. He's at UVA. But this yeah. idea of it's narrative identity, right? And so this mm-hmm. that the way I tell the story about myself shapes my identity. And you know, even Bruner studied this stuff and wrote about this stuff. This idea that if you know, one one definition of of mental illness is that your your sense of self is fractured. Mm-hmm. And by telling these stories, you have more of an identity. And and what Dan McAdams, what you're referring to is this this redemptive story arc, right? that you start, and I actually just had students of mine, high school students that I have in a positive psychology class, I had them do this a couple weeks ago, is, you know, take a challenge, something that was hard. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you wouldn't have chosen it, but through it, you learned something or you were stronger afterward, right? And so they're learning that they're creating the narrative of their life. That, well, that's, oh, the, I have, that's the, the process of post-traumatic growth, right? Like, Absolutely. what's the important piece? What what importance did I learn from this tragedy, difficulty, challenge? Right. It's cool, too, that the post-traumatic growth literature, I mean, that most people do that on their own, right? That, that yeah. you know, this, you know, about, I think, I think roughly, and, and this is, um, you know, Rich Tedeschi and Calhoun and some others who yeah. are on post-traumatic growth, but that about a third of people suffer PTSD, and by the way, I don't know if you, you see this in, in the as a clinician, but as an educator, you know the way people talk about. And I say I, I say kids, but I, I don't like saying that because to make it sound like they're yeah. worse than. But but this is what I'm hearing in the classroom is that people you know students are talking about that's traumatic or that's a traumatic experience, and and one reframe I was doing is like well you know you can go through a, a traumatic experience and 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 be okay, and in fact most people kind of, you know, process it, right? About two thirds mm-hmm. process it, About a third may get some, may get PTSD. Um, but, but actually the majority 
something like half or more than half have some kind of growth, right? Have some kind of growth. Now, I don't think my father dying at tw- when I was 24 is traumatic. I mean, that happens all the time. It's tough, right? I mean, most people lose yeah. a parent. Many people don't have two parents. I mean, I, so reframing it that way, but still, but it definitely, like I said before, I did some benefit finding, really great thing to do in positive psychology. And one of the benefits is that, you know, dad, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you're gone, but you know, I did learn that this is not a dress rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the kind of, that's, you know, I, I think post-traumatic growth, like the way we sense making is just so important. So well, and I'm the, glad you I brought mean, that up. It, in post-traumatic growth, I love that, you know, some of the areas that result from post-traumatic growth, which you just mentioned is a greater appreciation for life, change yep. set of priorities, uh, warmer, more intimate relationships with others. I, I think we realize that, holy shit, this is all about relationships. Yep. Um, yeah, I think we touched on Chris Peterson uh, when we first spoke, or was that Rob Mack? I don't know. <laughs> no, it's okay. We can talk about Chris Peterson. I'm, yeah. I'm getting my, my positive psych people mixed no, up. No, no worries. Um, but it, it's interesting, you know, you were telling your story, and, and thank you for sharing that. And it, it made me think, I was talking with Rob Mack, and I, I don't know if you know him, I think he was, he went to the MAP program also, might have been a different not really a different era, but a different time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting how I, I love your line of pain as a touchstone for growth. I think that's mm-hmm. absolutely spot on because everyone, everyone who shares a story on here is kind of like, yeah, I had the knife to my wrist like that, you know, and it's not all suicide, but that was Rob's story. You know, I was, right. had the knife to my wrist and then I was like, well, what happens if I wait 15 minutes? And, and so I think, we all get to that point of pain, of wanting the pain to stop, of asking what's this all about. And the, I guess the better answers we can come up with means the more enjoyable life becomes. And Absolutely. positive psychology for me was like manna from heaven. Yep. I mean, it was massive. You know, just while I have it, I, I'm just thinking about something. I have it, I'm, I'm off screen here for a second, but I'm grabbing a book. This is a great book by uh margarita tarragona who's a psychologist oh yeah she's uh, yeah 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 so this she works with positive acorn which is uh robert biswas diener ed diener's son also a great psychologist in his own right yeah um it's called positive the Identities indiana by jones of uh positive yes Psychology. the indiana jones is what is what marty called him yeah. great guy um and a uh, great 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 researcher and uh he works a lot on coaching now but this positive identities book so you know, it's, it's one way to say, well, I need to, how do I do that? Like, how do I, you know, try to change my narrative? How do I try to change my stories in this book by Margarita Tarragon is great because there's, there's, you know, exercises you can do and she's a terrific psychologist. So it's really all, you know, very, very much based on the research, but a really good workbook to kind of think about, well, how do I, how do I work on my story? Well, and, and one of the pieces of work that I loved uh, by Robert was when he went to um, the slums of Calcutta. Yeah. And did work with families there in extreme poverty and found that, you know, you don't necessarily need material wealth to be happy that, you know, I I remember one of the stories was a guy that was like a, for lack of a better term, like a rickshaw driver, he would pull like a cart around and give people rides in the city. And the house that he lived in had three walls and a roof. And a family of six lived in this one room, three walled lean to. and he was grateful for the opportunity to have work. He was grateful for running water, uh, which I think, well, I think was the river next to them. Um, there was no toilet. And yet he found things to be grateful for in that, which I think is a great, um, it offers great perspective to us to remind us all that we have to be grateful for. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a couple thoughts on that is, um, I think in that work, and he also, you know, worked with the Maasai and actually joined a band of Maasai. And they, I have seen a picture because I've seen Robert speak a few times of him, like having to, like they, they, they tattooed him with a knife basically. And he's like, had stoic. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you know, or no, it was circumcision. I think they didn't show, thank goodness. They didn't show the cut. <laughs> right. Sorry, dude. Didn't want to make you. you know, <laughs> I was going to spit my there. coffee on my laptop. I man. know. But my point is, is that he found that there are some, similarities you know that 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 um well-being can be found cross-culturally yeah. and also just relationships i mean relationships are so important 
And, and mm-hmm. so often, and Chris Peterson says it in one of his books, um, Primer and Positive Psychology, that that's, you know, that's really kind of the, if, if you had to say, what's one thing, it's relationships. So, I mean, we want, so I'm, I'm very much a, a, a person who's equity and justice, it's important to, I mean, I want, I don't want anyone to not have a toilet or not have running water, right? So those are, those are real needs that have to be met. So, I mean, because I just, you know, the reason I say this is sometimes I worry is like, well, everyone can be happy, even if you're destitute. I think everyone, no one should be destitute. And people are destitute, right? That's the way it is. And people are at different places and everyone can use positive psychology regardless of where they are. So, right. Well, yeah. And and Chris's tagline was other people matter. And I remember reading about that. uh, I don't know. 2004, 2005, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was a little bit frustrated by it, honestly, because I'm more introverted. I can be a little bit reserved. I can, I had a little anxiety back then, had a little Mm -hmm. depressive streak back then. Well, maybe still do, but, Mm -hmm. um, and and it's like, I was in my mind at first, I was like, mother, like now I got to go out and like be nice to people and like talk to people. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of joking about that, but only half. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and the funny thing is that once I made that shift, it's a whole new world because I I think, you know, kind of going on the ideas of Jer Clifton and those primal world beliefs, I think that it shifts your, what you believe about the world writ large, like to Mm -hmm. what extent do you see the world as safe versus dangerous? But then there's that other level of what are your general beliefs about people? Are people generally right. good or generally bad? Are they honest or dishonest? Will they help me or not? Or what extent, you know, to what extent? And I think the more positive interaction, meaningless at some level, positive interactions, those two or three minute conversations that we have at Safeway or Starbucks or wherever you are, but just the attempt to connect and get the other person to smile. Right. You walk away a winner, they walk away a winner because you both both get that positive emotional boost. Absolutely. And what that reminds me of is high quality connections. Looking at uh, Jane Dutton's, uh, one of her books over here, but I can't find it. But yeah, high quality connections. Um, you know, Chris Peterson was at the University of Michigan and that's where um, Jane Dutton is. And just what in her work, a lot of her work is about um, taking a moment, even if it isn't a good friend or a family member, and just taking a moment just to kind of savor that interaction. And I think, I think, you know, I don't think my parents didn't, you know, meant any harm, but I think in her, in their generation, it's just about very kind of like being polite, not imposing, you know, um, and that was like good behavior, right? But a lot of this research is, you know, taking a little bit of a moment, having a conversation with a person from whom you buy, you know, a newspaper, if anyone still buys those things, or, you know, a candy bar or coffee, those things can, can be tiny little boosts. Oh, yeah. So I totally, totally agree with you. Well, and there was the study back in or and back in the seventies, I think, with Alice Eisen at UCLA, and she found that just finding a quarter in a payphone uh, to the young listeners yeah. out there, a payphone was something. <laughs> it was a phone in the middle of the street that you would go to, and you would put coins in, and then you would dial a number, and then you would talk on a phone, kind of like a cell phone but stationary. Um, so, finding a quarter in the change slot of a payphone was a small positive emotional boost, as right. well as receiving three Hershey's kisses wrapped up in tissue paper, but it, right. like huge benefits from three Hershey's kisses, like more accurate decision-making, positive emotional boost, um, better, you get along better with your coworkers, like x-ray technicians actually diagnosed their x-rays slightly more accurately. Right. So I, I love that because it, it reframed what I needed to get a positive emotional boost and it brought it down to a really small scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. So I'm right now, I'm, I'm in, I'm, by the way, I'm in Annandale, Virginia, which is near DC. And I, you know, my office, I have this beautiful view. My neighbors, her roses are, are blooming. But just taking that moment, just to savor that moment, because they're, you know, we're, we're, we're talking a little bit like about primal world beliefs. And I know you've had Jer on before, you know, basic, the most basic beliefs about the world. Or you can just think about kind of the, the beliefs you have. I, you know, just look out and what in the world can you, can give you like a little bit of a boost and just having, and, and actually going back to my, to my, my coaching uh, from my mentors in, in sobriety is one metaphor they would use is, you know, my, my mentor would say, 
you have the telescope backwards. So you're looking in the big end mm-hmm. and everything seems tiny. And so here, turn it around. And that was really helpful that the world is actually, you know, the problem is like how I'm perceiving the world um, as opposed to the world itself. And that there's so many good things in the world. There are bad things in the world too. And those are actually things I spent a lot of time on, um, in, 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 you know, in my life. Um, but every day I spend um, time looking at the good stuff, savoring. And last thing I'll, I'll say in that is, is I do a five a five item gratitude list, and I send it to one of my one of my sober buddies every day. And it's, wow, it's ritual. Yeah, and actually, and it's and, and it helps me like, oh, I didn't put my wife down here. I think we need to go out on a date, or you know, my daughter and I. Oh yeah, we should we should just hang out, and get some coffee, and you know, just shoot the shit for a while. Um, cause sometimes I'm, I'm forgetting the things that are great in my life. Um, so I think that's super important. These little, little doses, whether it's a Hershey's kiss or something that someone's done for you or relationships or gratitude. Well, and that's, so do me a favor. Sorry to interrupt there. There's like no, six things it. I wanted to say while you were talking. Sure. Um, explain savoring a bit to people that aren't familiar with that idea. Cause I think it's really, really important. Sure. So I think, so, you know, if you savor something we all know what the word means, right? If you savor it, it just means you kind of do relish we? the f- dewy, <laughs> but especially do in this age, this damn phone of mine. I can't I'm savor. busy, Henry. I've got to go. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, relishing something and we kind of, I think often we think about it as like the perfect dessert, right? You're relishing it. I'm not, by the way, savoring is a real challenge for me. Um, I force myself to meditate in part because I just move too fast. Um, there's lots of benefits, but that's one of it. So the first, the first part of savoring is, is, Oh, that's, this is a good thing. So recognizing that something is a good thing and that's worthy of savoring and then stopping really getting mindful. Right. And so getting mindful about it, like, so, and getting into the sensations. So how does it taste? How does it feel? What does it look like? Um, really getting mindful and, and, trying to do that in a way you might meditate and, and just let the, let the sensations come in and then feel the sensations. And it's, it's a, it's a practice. It's like everything else. It's a habit. I'm much better about gratitude than I am about savoring, but just taking that moment to enjoy something that's enjoyable um, can, can have a, it's a, one, once again, one of those little boosts. And of course, if you make it a habit, it's a big boost. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation. I think you're absolutely spot on. I, the awareness is the first piece and then sitting with it for a few seconds. I mean, literally the other day I stopped to smell the roses. Like I walked past a rose bush and I was like, wait a second. And I just went back and, and smelled it. Right. And, and I think if we realize that these positive emotional boosts, like the I think I was looking for big things when I was younger, you know, like graduating school or getting a new job or I don't know, paycheck or a new car, whatever it was, but those things don't come along frequently enough. Mm-hmm. And, and so if we dial down our expectations to look for the minute, kind of like that idea of turning the telescope around, right. um, I think that that is really, really helpful. I think too, another piece of that is that those things are contingent, right? So you have to do something to get. I yeah. think par- part of cultivating a gratitude is like, there is a ton of stuff that's free, right? And if you're of a religious br- bent, it could be called grace, right? So that rose, you didn't have to pay to enjoy it, right? Mm-hmm. This, this beautiful day, the blue sky. I, I, you know, when I, it's funny, when I was a kid, I hated the sound of little kids. I have three girls <laughs> next door. Yeah, I'm a teacher too. This is terrible. The sound of the kids next door just makes me happy. Yeah, it does. And I'm just so, so if they're, if they're just doing their thing, I just sit there on my back porch and I love this. And so having that mindset, like there's so much out there to enjoy. Now, I, I don't want to, you know, just a small caveat is like, there are people who are in terrible circumstances. So I'm not, I'm not saying, Hey, you know, just see the good stuff in your life and you'll be fine. Let's just say that there's a lot of bad things out there and people go are living in terrible places and don't have enough. And to the degree that you can look for the things that are free, everyone has yeah. relationships, right? Um, and try to save them a little bit. When 
And to me, it's always an interesting challenge to look for and spot these things. And what mm-hmm. you touched, you alluded on one of the physiological um, effects, I guess, from these things. And what I notice is that when I get in touch with these, I'll exhale more deeply. Yes. And the exhalation is connected to the parasympathetic nervous system, mm-hmm. which is the relaxation response in the vagus nerve, which automatically kicks in that relaxation response. And it was funny. I remember I started dating my fiance six years ago. And I, I said to her, do you realize that every time I touch you, you exhale? Wonderful. And she was like, oh my God. Like I did, I wasn't even aware. Marry that woman. Oh yeah. Well, I'm well, clearly, clearly now, I so. mean, right. But clearly like she, you make her happy. Right. I mean, what a yeah. great, what a great response she has that. Yeah. Ah, you're calming to her. Yeah. So changing subjects, because we've, we haven't even gotten any of the questions yet that we <laughs> prearranged. Um, right. But I do want to get to, because I, I want to get, a, well, I want to get a little bit more to gratitude and then to optimism. Um, sure. But any tips on gratitude? You said you were doing daily five points. Do you vary that at all? Is there different yeah. things you look for? Right, because I mean, as you know, the li- some of the literature I know Lou Bumersky and some others uh, mm. know about maybe twelve years ago. I forget when that came out, but still trying to figure out how to say her name properly. Yeah, Sonia. Sonia Bumersky. <laughs> yeah, Sonia. There you go. <laughs> Sonia um, L. She, Sonia L. Uh, she, you know, she and, and a couple other um, other uh, folks on the study basically said that you know it's good to vary it. Sometimes doing it every day isn't good. Mm-hmm. So I think just finding your own rhythm, the problem I have with trying to do it three days a week is I stop doing it. Right. Um, cause, cause I found what works for me as a habit. Um, and also I just think that doing it with someone else. So I, I also, again, just kind of in the habit, the habit literature, the habit, you know, best practices is if you can do a habit with someone else, it's yeah, much more likely to stick. Uh, accountability partner, even if it's, even if it's implicit, right. That this is just something that Jay and I do every day is, is send each other gratitude list. Um, so ver- variety is really important. And so, mm-hmm. but I do get the same things like that was a great meal. And my kids were great today when we were running around outside and sometimes, so that's really important is variety. Also, I think it's really important. So my, my sister's birthday was yesterday. And, and we've had a little bit of a rocky patch lately, which is unusual. This is the sister I'm, I've traditionally been closest to. Mm. And uh, we just, you know, it's part of it is eight moms, 89. And, you know, for those of you who have aging parents, you know, that that's just a, it's, I'm getting sad just thinking about it. Right. It's just a yeah. heartbreak. Um, and um, getting a little sad here, um, but that's okay. Um, but just the, what I want to, I want to, so what I put on my list is I want to write her a, basically a gratitude letter because this mm. is the sister who, when, you know, the house was kind of falling apart. Um, she was the one that really like was, was kind of like mom and dad to me. Um, and we argued cause you know how it is. You argue with your yeah. parents. Um, but especially when I was, you know, drug use and alcohol, she was kind of keeping an eye on me. And then, you know, for a while when I was really unhappy, she was the only family member that I really felt safe with. So, um, you know, just doing something like that. So I think again, through habit, you get an awareness like, you know what, this is a really good time to, so I'm going to, I'm going to write her a gratitude letter. Um, especially, you know, part of it is that I, I value the relationship, but we've had a, we've gone through a rough patch and we're on the other side of it, but it's still, you know, we're not talking as much as we used to. Um, and just to really, you know, to help me because you know the the thing that's top of mind for me is this this disagreement we had for about a year about about mom and her care and things like that um and really to put to bring to top of mind is the good stuff from our relationship so yeah i do think once you start once you start making gratitude kind of a working muscle it's easier to kind of build on that well yeah and, and i love thank you for sharing that and um, when, when I look at gratitude, I try and look at different layers. So I, cause I think mm-hmm. most of us look at, look for the obvious, you know, I'm grateful for mm-hmm. my mom, my dad, my wife, my the house, you know, that kind of thing, the clothes, my job, which is all great. And then the next layer is sort of look for things that are less obvious. Like right. I'm grateful for my hearing, for example, just because yes. I, I have a friend who is dealing with, uh, I think it's Rainier's syndrome and is 
progressively losing his hearing and is going to go mm. profoundly deaf shortly. And he's my age. He's in his mid fifties. Um, or the ability to feed myself with a fork because not everyone has that. Right. Um, and then the third level for me is being grateful for your biggest challenges in life. Like yes. I'm grateful for my contentious divorce because it taught me to really master these emotional management tools, yes. that kind of thing. And then, which is kind of a post-traumatic growth flavor to it. There, you know, me. it reminds me someone who's not in the psychological literature, but a woman named Paula Waymiller, writer, um, who, who she she was kind of on a on the speaker circuit in the in the in the Mid Atlantic, and basically what she said is your most challenging students um, is is a guardian angel, right? That the kid that I just this kid is driving me nuts. Like I Crazy, can't get yeah. through to them. That person is the gateway to the most growth I can possibly do. Yeah. So I think what you, what you talked about, about, you know, having grateful, having gratitude for things that are tough. That's a tough one, right? A lot of people are like, no, I'm not going to go there. Um, but actually making it into something where this has really helped me. I've had to up my game. I've had to change, you know, because I think, you know, some of my most challenging students over the years have, have made me, have changed me the most. Cause it's like, yeah, you know, I have more flexibility. I'm the adult I'm trained. They're doing what they're doing. You have and a fully also, functioning prefrontal cortex. Exactly. They're not, they're not. Yeah. And so, and some would argue that some people never, never get there. Um, <laughs> I won't, I, won't, I, I won't say that. I won't date. I won't, I won't do a gender thing on there. Cause I'd be, I'd be <laughs> beaten up on myself. Um, but yeah, I love that you have that, that you're able to frame it as like, this is this sucks. It doesn't feel good. And it's bringing out the best in me. Yeah. It's there for a reason. Yeah. So what's the reason I, I have, but to find it. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Make you um, better. And then I, Make you better, John. Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to go, I want to, here's a shameless plug for your book daily better 365 days of optimism. Yeah, Here it is. There it is. Um, so like, what was your thinking in writing that book? Why was that important to you? Um, it's important. I mean, I, I was, um, I remember when I was a kid seeing this show, it's probably in the eighties. I mean, a long time ago. Um, and, and it was, it was like a half hour program. It was not the regular programming, but the person, the presenter said, you know, we're worried about this. We're worried about this. You know, the biggest problem is poverty. And I'm like, yeah, you don't hear about poverty being the biggest problem. You hear about the Cold War. You hear about the oil crisis. You hear about, um, you know, tax cuts. You hear about things like that. I'm going, you know, that's what we were worried about um, in the 80s. But basically that um, because of how the news, because of how we get the news, the, the worst thing rises to the top, right? If it bleeds, it leads. Mm -hmm. So what we're, so if the news is a reflects the state of the world and the world is screwed, right? Um, because it's about war, it's about murder, it's about um, celebrities doing ridiculous things that are kind of fun to watch, but also pretty awful. Um, all the, all the worst things, right? Yeah. So, you know, I like what, and so Steve, and more recently, Steven Pinker's books like Enlightenment Now and, and The Better Angels of Our Nature influenced me in that um, he has a great quote. So if you don't want to cherry pick, meaning like, because I, I think I see the news as cherry picking the worst, mm -hmm. then count all the cherries. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you, when you look at the, the whole world, you see that, you know, despite what's happening in Ukraine, one reason why Ukraine is so out, outrageous uh -huh. is that we've stopped doing this in Europe, right? You, you don't roll tanks over borders anymore. And, you know, the, the reaction against clearly what Putin is doing is awful. It's one of the worst things that's happened in, in decades, um, at least at least in Europe. I mean, these things have also happened in other places and we pay less attention to it, which I think is a problem. But the, the world response to, I mean, the fact that Finland and Sweden are going to join NATO and they should because their neighbor is being awful, right? That's a, that's a, that's mm -hmm. a good response to, to what Putin is doing. So anyway, to, there's so much, so, so there's so much, there's less war, you know, crime is near historic lows, although it has been going up. Um, there's more inequality, but across the world, fewer people are in abject poverty. 
Um, I read a lot of positive news sites. And what I'm hearing is that, um, you know, India is getting closer to eliminating uh, like the $2 and five cents a day, absolute poverty, you know, talking we were talking about Calcutta earlier and that someone, so there are so many things going right. How do we seed our kind of news feed with the things that are going right? And so my idea was, is to do basically a daily reflections. So every day of the year, I want you to, I want to tell a story about what's right with humanity. And so for today, today's March 19th or May 19th, it's today's Johns Hopkins birthday. And Johns Hopkins, mm-hmm. of course, um, you know, became rich, uh, mostly through investments in the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. And that's, you know, where I live. It's a, it's a big thing. And, and you've pr- most people have heard of Johns Hopkins, but it's, it's oh, in yeah. Baltimore. It's one of the great, uh, great medical university. schools in the world. Yeah, great university, too. And, you know, things like, um, med- you know, Johns Hopkins, from this behest by this person, um, we have things like we have great medical universities and actually the medical residency started there. Um, different forms of, um, disinfection of, of, um, of surgery theaters, doctor training. So, you know, one thing it's easy to forget is like, I have like, I'm getting a, a CT scan for some, some bad headaches that I have, you know, you get older, these things happen more. And I'm also getting physical therapy for a sports injury you know, this, these things didn't exist. I mean, we're talking leechcraft, we're talking, um, you know, all medicine. So how can we think about something that humans have done right every day of the year? And that's really, it reflects my own story in the, in the, in the introduction, I talk about how, you know, this attitude of gratitude that I was taught totally changed how I felt about myself and how I felt about the world. So that's really why I did it. And again, thank you for sharing that. And I think that attitude of gratitude, while the saying is trite and little wincy, it's absolutely true at the same time, because I think the more we practice things like optimism or gratitude, the more you become an optimistic or grateful person in the moment. Yes. And so you begin to train your mind to spot these things. And over time, those skills become a habit and they infiltrate your way of thinking and perceiving and you start to pick up on this stuff with very little, if no effort, right? As you move through the, your daily life, which is amazing. Yes. So let's go with me, if you would, into Marty Seligman's work on realistic optimism and his explanatory styles for people that are interested in becoming more optimistic. Besides, you know, purchasing your book and reading <laughs> these stories, which is awesome. Um, how do we interpret things? to our benefit or, or even what's backing up, what's the trade-off between choosing to be more pessimistic, quote, realistic, or being more realistically optimistic? Yeah. Um, and Marty's work is on um, explanatory style, something he calls learned optimism, um, is really about yourself. It's not about the world. So that's an important, important uh, distinction to make between what I'm trying to do and what his work um, does. And that's just really, okay. how do you interpret Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, and it's harder. Actually what Jer is doing is, is more about connects to our beliefs about the world um, as opposed to our beliefs about our own life. Um, so optimism in psychology is just the belief that the future is going to be good. Right. Um, and pessimism is a, a belief that the future is going to be bad. Or the and present so moment. Is, I mean, I can also have the present a moment. Yeah, interpretation yeah, yeah. of right now or an optimistic interpretation. Yep, exactly. So, and, and he breaks his, from his research, he's broken it into three things that, that let's say I, you know, uh, let's say I'm, I'm single. I'm, I call a woman, you know, um, we've been on a few dates. She stops calling me. Um, a, 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 so here's how I might interpret it pessimistically is that, oh, you know, I knew this was going to happen. Um, I'm, I'm a schmuck. Um, you know, this is just like the rest of my life and it's always going to be this way. And so you could break that into, you know, personal, right. It's about me pervasive. It's about all parts of my life and, um, permanent. It's always going to be this way. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, if I were more optimistically, it's like, well, she's, you know, she's, she's missing out because, you know, I'm not, you know, I think I thought we had some great dates and I, you know, if, if maybe we're not right for each other, so that's okay. So it's, literally just an interpretation and it's not personalizing it, right? I'm not saying I'm the problem. Um, I'm not making this a part of 
um, who I am. It's not my, my identity is not tied up. So, so often, and I think I certainly relate to this and, and I think most people do is this idea that if, if I have a failure, it's basically a report card on me as a human being. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, what this, this explanatory style can help you do is to not personalize it. I mean, it's really coming out of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, um, really Marty's background. Um, Aaron Beck, one of the founders of, of kind of the cognitive CBT is one of the founders along with Albert Ellis of that whole, of that whole, um, way of doing therapy, but just really, you know, taking your own judgments and then applying some rationality to it in order to argue against them. So what, you know, the upshot is basically, um, to think of the good things as permanent, pervasive, and personal and the bad things is not. Mm -hmm. The problem with that, I think is, you know, there's, there's some ethical issues, right? So, um, a narcissistic person can do all this, <laughs> right? <laughs> I knew you were going to go to narcissists. <laughs> yep, I was going to go, but you know, but the thing, but the fact is, is that like think of it as a tool, not as an ethical decision. And you know, you should always there should always be the eject button about ethics. So if I say, you know, if I do something wrong or, or unethical, I shouldn't say, well, it's not my fault. It's not personal. Yeah. It's not pervasive. It's not permanent. So, I mean, I do think there's the ethical piece, but just the practical piece about well-being, I think is really helpful that, that we, you know, cause I want to like, especially my, my men's group works. So many guys just are, you know, if they don't get a call back from someone they're trying to date. I mean, it just, it, it's a, it's a, it's a statement about their whole self. Well, and, and that's funny. Like I've been doing a lot of work on depersonalization skills with my mm-hmm. clients over the past few years and just teaching them how not to take things personally, like dating. Right. And yep. I remember um, back when I was like 25, I had a, I was consulting with a teacher in a school and, you know, I was young and she was more experienced. And I think she was kind of like, who the hell are you to tell me anything? And so she was a little bit snarky one day and it kind of hurt my feelings. And I went back to my favorite professor at Cal, Meiji Singh. And I was like, Hey, you know, this is what happened. And I'm kind of struggling with it. And he said, you know, John, we humans make the mistake of taking 95% of what other people say, do and feel personally when in fact it's about 5%. And I was like, huh. And I've been working on that ever since. Yep. And so how can we, how can we learn to interpret other people's behaviors or what they feel in a way that has nothing to do with us? Right. And the example I give is, you know, like the boss comes into work, he's really angry you can tell like his grip on his suit or his uh, briefcase is tight. His brows furrowed, his walk is fast, goes into the office, slams the door. Everyone on the floor is thinking, Oh shit, what did I do to piss him off? Right. They're taking it personally. Very human. Whereas, and you know, like, Oh my God, he hates the report that I gave him or he knows I left five minutes early yesterday or whatever it is. When in fact there's 600 other explanations that are probably far more likely, like just got in a fight with his wife has a teenage son that came home drunk last night, got a ticket on the way to work, had a flat tire on the way to work, is worried about finances for the company or his, his own finances. I mean, and right. you can go on and on and on. But the emotional gift that you get from taking it less personally is massive. Absolutely. So I'm teaching a positive psychology class right now to high schoolers. And we just talked about self-compassion on Monday. Um, and I don't know if, you know, the, the Kristen Neff's work, yeah, yeah, she was a classmate this, of mine at Cal. Yeah, yeah, because I know she went to Cal. I know she got her. I know she got her PhD there. But yeah, yeah. um, you know, her her this idea of self compassion, like, is the three elements are be kind to yourself, right? And and if that's hard, because it is hard for a lot of people, think of how you would want your child to be treated. Think about how you'd want your spouse or significant other, girlfriend, boyfriend, they friend, uh, be treated be treated or how would you treat a friend? And often the doing the flip of, oh, I wouldn't talk to a friend the way I talk to myself. Ah, right. Light bulb. And another piece that you touched on is this common humanity that Mm -hmm. everyone is your, is that boss. Everyone is that boss. Right. And I know, you know, if I'm mad about something, often it's about, you know, three, three scenes back. Right. Or, or you and I were talking about kind of, you know, um, perseverating about different, different things and losing sleep over it earlier. And, you know, yeah, that's, that's, that is the human condition. It's going to happen. Yeah. When that happens, like, oh, it's because I'm a human, right? I'm suffering Mm -hmm. right now. 
because I'm human. And then what we've talked about before is having mindfulness. Oh, I'm really saying some nasty things to myself right now. Um, that's, you know, not judging yourself because then you're just going to start beating yourself up. You shouldn't do that. But just to say, okay, this is a moment. How can I, how can I soothe myself? How can I comfort myself? Because clearly I'm, I'm not doing any good to myself. So when, that, that self-compassion relates to all this. Yeah. And, and I love that you brought that up. Uh, that idea of shared suffering or common humanity from Neff is a big deal in my mind in the sense that I, I think I used to beat myself up tremendously for like, oh, I'm depressed. I'm a guy. I shouldn't feel depressed. Stop being a pussy, you know, all that stuff. And the, the common humanity or shared suffering piece says that when you get into one of those negative emotional states, be aware, because I, I think those uncomfortable emotions want to make us believe that our suffering is somehow unique and more intense mm -hmm. and more special than anyone else. And it disconnects us from everyone because Correct. it's unique. I'm the only one that's ever suffered like this through a breakup, that kind of thing. Right. And, and I think that that's not true at all, that if you can flip it and realize, wait, hundreds of millions of people have been through breakups just like this, and maybe they're not exactly the same, but they've definitely suffered the exact same emotions as a result mm -hmm. of a breakup. Therefore, these emotions actually connect us to millions and millions of other people. They're not isolating right. us. That's a big reframe. Absolutely. Such a good one. Yeah, I think, you know, there's the saying, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. Yeah, um, that's the fundamental you know, attribution error, right? I like the... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's much that, more palatable that, the way you said it. Yeah, not original, but someone, someone, a wise person told me that. And just this idea that that person looks like they have their shit together. In fact, I probably look like I have my shit together. And yeah, I may not... you do. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but all of us, all of us are like struggling, right? With something. Yeah, at times. Right? And Yeah, at times. So just that, that, you know, you almost think about like, oh, everyone looks like they're fine, but I bet you someone in here has a shitty marriage or is breaking up with someone or has a kid that is tough, you know, not, not because they're bad kids, but because they, they have a condition or they're depressed that that's everybody. Um, and, but you don't see that, right. Because of, because of our presentation, you know, um, social presentation, we, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't wear our hearts on our sleeves all the time. So just that, yeah, that, 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 um, people struggle, the common humanity, it links us. So this has been an amazing conversation. I'm, I'm aware of time. I, I've greatly enjoyed this. And can I ask you one more question? Because I think this is a, I don't know, it was important to me. I don't know if it's going to be important to them. But so a while back, I had Dan Tomasulo on who has yeah. written a book on learned hopefulness and love him, love his work. And he taught me really about the change to Marty Seligman's seminal work. Uh, decades ago on learned helplessness that he started with dogs. Right. But he recently updated and revised that work, realizing that it wasn't learned helplessness at all. Can you give us that story? Sure. So this is this was Marty's work when he was, I think he I think this is the work that he did either for his PhD at Penn um, or just after. And he was working with another psychologist named Steve Mayer, who I think is at one of the Colorado I forget if it's Colorado State or University of Colorado, but Steve Mayer is now a neuroscientist. He's he's he went on to get PhDs in other fields, including neuroscience. Um, but basically, the way they the way they thought about it in, in the and I guess it was the late '60s or early '70s was that you know they would give shocks to dogs and they would create circumstances basically that if they if the dogs believed they couldn't escape, they just gave up. They didn't even mm -hmm. try, even though escape was possible, and they, and they were shocked these animals, which is terrible. Um, then 50 years later, doing neuroscience work, um, and this is not work that Marty did, it was work that Steve Mayer was doing. Um, and, and basically, at, you know, now that they can, they can I think they used um, uh, fiber optic light to stimulate different, different nerves. And basically what they found is that it was, it was um, the default was helpful, helplessness, mm -hmm. right? And that you had to learn to be agentic, which makes a lot of sense, right? Okay, wait, wait, wait. No one's going to understand agent agentic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that um, leaping out of a box is you have to learn how to do that. So you have to learn that how to help yourself. You learn how to help yourself. Okay. Right. 
and so and I love Dan Tomasulo's work is great and it's his his book is is learned hopefulness and definitely recommend that for people. You know, this makes sense from evolution because you think about really basic life forms. What's their what's their basic defense? Sometimes I think I'm a basic life form. (laughs) Well, you know, I I wasn't gonna mention it, but uh, (laughs) hopefully we could talk after the Zoom, John. I agree. Um, I felt like a blob this morning. Yeah. And so you were just you were like plain dead. (laughs) That was your first defense, right? Yep. Um, you know, it's the freeze, flight, or fight, right? Those are ba- our basic defenses. And so what we have to do is we have to teach people agency. Um, and and I, I, the one thing I, I, I like about that is that there's, I think there's not enough compassion for, for people who are struggling. Um, I, think I think we're getting better about it, but for so much of history, it was like, get off your ass, you know, don't be lazy. Suck it you know, up. Getting off your ass, that first step, um, is hard. And I, yeah. you know, as a depressive, that's where I yeah. was. And the reason I got off my ass is my ass fell off when my dad died, which happens yeah. for a lot of us. We all like you go through divorce, someone dies, you get fired. Um, luckily I chose, you know, I'm like, help. Right. I, I said, help. And then I got help Good for and you. Then they taught me. Yeah. yeah. They taught me. So, um, I'm incredibly lucky. I'm incredibly lucky. And so, you know, I dream of a world where everyone has access to help because um, I don't think everyone has, is, is, is taught agency. And I think that that's a, that's a huge social problem, a huge problem with our society. And and I think that's, thank you for the explanation. And I think that's why this shift in idea is such a big one in the sense of to the extent we can realize that helplessness is our initial state. Exactly. And that we have to learn ways to get past it or beyond it. I think it can change the narrative of what you were saying. Like, you're so lazy. Like, I, it's interesting in my advanced age, I've noticed that I jump on people and I'm like, uh, you know, let's be careful with that word lazy. Like, I'm not really a fan of that word lazy. Yes, mm-hmm. something's going on. I do not think it's laziness. Right. I agree. It's so pejorative. Um, And, you know, maybe it's ADHD, maybe it's depression, maybe it's they don't know any better. Maybe it's, you know, that they're anxious. Maybe it's trauma. I mean, there's all these other possible explanations that could be going on. Um, I I think it's a a cop cop out to just say, oh, man, my son's so lazy. Right. So I'm, I'm always kind of cautioning people against the word lazy. Agreed. I just I just don't use it as an educator. Yeah. So what do you use? Do you throw erasers at your students? Sometimes, but they know that it's in good fun. I don't do it out of anger. Um, do you get to hit their hands with a stick like in Pink Floyd, the wall? Uh, you know, actually though, I do, I do do little pats sometimes. Um, <laughs> at least for the bad. I do it to myself too when I'm bad. Yeah, I do that too. Um, bad, John. Bad, bad. Um, so yeah. So, so I just, I just, there there's there's something blocking it and and not that necessarily that the goal i've created for them is one that they should attain although i try to and and i luckily i work in a school where there's a lot of freedom and and things are project-based inquiry-based not standards-based not that standards are all bad um or you know it's not test-based and just to see just to you know get curious like what's going on yeah um and, and, and that's, you know, I think part of it is being a parent and part of it is teaching a long time is just realizing that everyone's, everyone's got a story and, yeah. and, and the, and the kind of the, the course of learning that I think a student should take is everybody's got a different course. And yes, there's assignments and standards, but just being more curious, listening more and, and, and intrinsic motivation. How, how are there, is there anything in here that you want for yourself? And, you know, most students do. Everyone wants, most people, you know, everyone, I think everyone wants to succeed in certain ways. And um, that can be just really a challenging thing for a lot of people. Well, yeah. And success for some people might be surviving the day. Yes. I, I mean, yeah. I've, that in my early twenties, I was kind of shocked to realize that like, oh, you know, your, fa- your parents don't value education and you're focused on survival. Okay. Right. I, I get it now. Um, yeah. You know, if, if you're worried about getting jumped on the way home from school, learning's probably not going to be at the top of your list. Nope. 
back to the yeah. you know fight flight freeze idea. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what they're coping with. Yeah. Well, Henry, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. I've loved this conversation. Yeah. Um, just in wrapping up, can you tell people where they can get your book and what the next book is to look forward to? Sure. So you can get it on Amazon. It's The Daily Better, 365 Reasons for Optimism, um, Authors Place Press, and Amazon. Um, so love for you to love for you to check that out. I think it's a lot of fun. Gotten a lot of great feedback about it as a as kind of a mood booster and kind of a, a shifter of how people see the world. And the next book, not sure when it's going to come out, um, but you know, hopefully in the next year or two. And that's positive psychology for teens, and that's really based on my work as well being director at my school and just different um, frameworks, but also in a lot of specific exercises to help you know teens just improve their improve their mood find purpose, improve their relationships, and just feel success. Well, please keep up the fantastic work. I appreciate it. Yeah, John, great great talking. Again, uh, I I really appreciate the conversation. You bet. Um, So for those of you listening out there, please feel free to rate, review, like, and share if you liked it. If you didn't like it, it's all right. You don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much for listening. This is The Evolved Caveman. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 